Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Janie Brown and Michael Lerner, co-presented with Healing Circles Global. Welcome to the new school at Commonweal. The conversation today is presented in collaboration with Healing Circles Global. And it's great to have so many people from all over the world here today. I'm Oren Slosberg. I'm the executive director in Commonweal and the co-director with Diana Lindsay of Healing Circles Global. At the beginning of April, we began a five-part series that features conversations with the lineage holders of Healing Circles Global, including um, Christina Baldwin and Anna Linnea from Pure Spirit. Last week, Michael talked with Parker Palmer, the founder of Courage and Renewal. And today's conversation is a very special treat between um, two old friends, Janie Brown and Michael Lerner. Keep in mind, this event is a fundraiser for Healing Circles Global. We are currently offering more than 1,500 service hours each month to people from around the world. These are circles for people with cancer, people who are suffering from COVID-inflicted isolation, and many other questions and challenges that face us today. So anything that you can offer today is helpful. It could be a one-time donation. It could be a monthly donation. You can find out more at healingcirclesglobal.org. So now we're ready to begin. Michael Lerner is the president and co-founder of Commonweal, the Cancer Health Program, the inspiration behind Healing Circles Global, a dear friend, teacher, and mentor. Janie is a writer, a nurse, a healer, and many other things. She's the founder of Kalanish in British Columbia. And with that, Michael, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you, Oren, so much. And welcome, Janie Brown. Hi, Michael. <laughs> Lovely to be here. Just a, a oh, great honor to be here. Wonderful. Wonderful. Janie, uh, let's just start with a moment of silence together. How would that be? So I'll keep the time and ask all of those around the world who are with us to just go into silence with us. Peace, peace. Janie, do you have a poem that we could start with? I'd love to start with a poem. Many of us in this larger community, I know, use poetry and love poetry, so it's lovely to share. Uh, welcome to you all from near and far. Um, it's just lovely. I think of this as the gathering of the clan, because I'm a Celt. So uh, just I can feel all of you, even though I can't see you. So I'll read this poem really by way of honoring uh, the ancestral lands that we all reside upon. Um, I'm going to read a poem by Joy Harjo, who I'm sure all of you know is the incumbent Poet Laureate of the US um, at the present time. And um, I just, I found this poem recently and I hadn't read it before. And I just think it speaks so much to the, what we think of as the ancient road that I think we all gather upon for this Healing Circles work. So this is Road by Joy Harjo. We stand first in our minds and then we toddle from hand to furniture Soon we are walking away from the house and lands of our ancestral creator gods to the circles of friends, of schooling, of work, making families and worlds of our own. We make our way through storm and sun. We walk side by side or against each other. 
the last road will be taken alone. There might be crowds calling for blood or a curtained window by the leaving bed. It is best to not be afraid. Lift your attention for the appearance of the next road. It might be through a family of trees, a desert, or on rolling waves of sea. It's the ancient road, the soul knows. We always remember it when we see it. It beckons at birth. It carries us home. Thanks to Joy Harjo. Thank you, Janie. We both know well, Janie, that in circle work, we always start a circle of two or more with a simple question. It can be framed in many ways, but a good way to frame it is to ask you what's on your heart this morning as we start. Thank you, Michael. Uh, well, I'll tell you a story because when I was brushing my teeth this morning, you know, I always have that time before you enter into one of these gatherings. And even if it's a small circle, I still have that same kind of feeling of a quickening. I was feeling that when I was sitting in the quiet, my heart, I could actually hear my heart, you know, it was going a bit faster than it might be normally as we, I think, enter into this, these gatherings. But I had a story come up and I, cause I was thinking to myself, what's, what's my first memory of a circle? you know, like way back, what was my, because I was thinking, so, and I actually, what came to mind was my father, um, who was a very quiet man and a very busy man. He was a businessman. And he, he came home every day to our family. I have three siblings and my mom, and he would always come home by six o'clock. There was no, you know, he never went over that boundary. It was a, a family calling, I think, but it didn't mean he didn't bring work home. And my first memory of a circle was with him because he would come home, he would get changed, he'd pour himself a glass of whiskey or sherry before dinner, and he'd sit on the couch and he'd pull out a sheaf of uh, newspaper clippings and they were all photocopied, obviously given to him by his um, assistant at work. And there was probably 30 and it was all the newspapers of the day with relevant pieces that he had to read before the next day. He worked. He ran um, the Scottish television company. So he was a managing director. And so I would sit tucked into his lap. And this must have been almost pre-reading because I couldn't read the, um, the pieces. And in front of me, so he'd have me on his lap. And then in front of me, he'd have these, this sheaf of papers. And I had a job to do. He would give me a pen. And he and it was very clear. And again, in our very clear uh, contracts for this arrangement, if I was going to get to be close to him on his lap, I had a job to do. And when he had finished reading an excerpt, he would nod his head and out of the corner of my eye, I could feel him nod. And I would take my pen and I tick, meaning he'd read it. And I felt so purposeful. I felt we were quiet together. This is to me a circle. We were quiet. We had very clear contracts. If I wriggled or I moved or I talked, that would be it. It would, you know, the contract was broken and I'd sit and he'd, took the page and I felt, I remember just being puffed up with pride. I felt I belonged there. I felt held, I felt safe. It must've been one of the first safe places I felt was there on his lap with a job to do, which is not surprising given you know how much work I've done in my life. I feel so dedicated to that purposeful life, which I know many of us in these circles do. So I love that memory. I hadn't thought of that for many, many years. So on my heart today is, is the way that we naturally gravitate to circle whether it's with one other 
um, whether it's with our families, if we're lucky to be born into a family where we can feel safe and we belong, not all of us had that beginning in life. And then, you know, in our through our lives, I think all of us in this gathering today are dedicated to coming together with other people in a very simple, but also very, in a way, tight way, a structured way. Uh, these circles are very clear. And the clarity, I think, brings a lot of safety and belonging and care. And I felt so loved in those moments. And, you know, we get to the end, you know, it took a long time because he had a lot to read, but I would just be so still there because I wanted to be, you know, wanted to do it well. So that was what was on my heart today. Mm, so on my heart today, so many things, but I will say, as you know, that um, had a life-saving surgery at the end of July last year for an abdominal aortic aneurysm, which was a big surgery, uh, five hours and then a long recovery. And it was supposed to be one and done. You know, you've done it and you'll be fine for a long time. But then uh, seven months later, I, I developed a, a, a hernia and some abdominal wall separations along the incision line. And so now I'm facing uh, another uh, quite significant surgery, not as dangerous as the first, but again, uh, three hours and four to seven days in the hospital. And the surgery, again, is around my navel, which for life historical reasons is the most trauma traumatized part of my body. And um, so the idea of being opened up again is a challenging one. And interestingly, my grandfather was the surgeon who worked his way up from poverty through medical school. And he did one of the first open abdomen surgeries in the United States on a cousin of his or a brother, I forget quite what it was. I have his uh, portrait hanging in my study, Albers was in. And the only memory I have of a past life is of lying on a battlefield in Japan. I was a uh, I'm not somebody who has lots of past life memories, but this one's very distinct, lying on a battlefield in Japan, uh, dying uh, on this field, looking up at the sky uh, as a, uh, a Zen warrior with a spear piercing my navel. And then in this lifetime, a sadistic nurse at the age of, I don't know what, seven, tickled me till I thought I was going to die in the navel. So there are these historic, you know, the grandfather who did the first open abdomen surgery, the past life in Japan, and then this lifelong trauma that I've worked in many ways with. And so here I am, I haven't set the date yet, but it's coming up soon, facing this new surgery. And in the poem you just read, that's a beautiful line about it's best not to be afraid, something like that. And what I discover is that the fear comes up for me. You know, I'm courageous in many parts of my life. I'm very courageous in my work. I'm courageous at some level in my inner life. But when it comes to being operated on, I'm not so courageous, you know. And so the fear comes up and the fear has been a real teaching for me. Um, I find that if I do a key practice of, bringing what I think of as the Christ energy with the key energy, 
down from above and then doing the key bellows of bringing it into my abdomen, that these help a lot actually. But I've been studying the fear, Janie. I've been studying the fear. So let me ask you, I often have a feeling, and I could be wrong about you, but I have a feeling about you that perhaps fear has not been as great in your life as it is in mine. Actually, that's based on my assessment of our Enneagram types, but you know, that's another story. Yes, another uh, but, but what is your experience with fear and what have you learned from your work about helping people with fear? Mm -hmm. well, well, thanks for the question. I, I just, when you were speaking about what's ahead, you, you said the words, I'm going to be opened up again. And I could visually, because of my nursing background, I know what that's like, you know, I've been in an OR. And, but that's such, you know, to be opened up physically is, is just, you know, I don't know if anyone enters into that future without fear. I mean, that's just the first thing I thought. I'm not sure anyone goes in, very few, maybe there are some who don't have that, because isn't fear about survival, the desire to survive. And then of course, you know, when you're, under anesthetic, you have no control. So it's about trust. Anyway, your question to me personally, the first thing that came to mind was, I have a fearless mother. And I, really, even though she's, she can be anxious, she's fearless. And I remember when we were in Hawaii as a family, my mother's 89, and she lives in Glasgow in the garden of the house I was raised in. And we were in Hawaii and she said, my niece, who was about 16, wanted to go on a helicopter ride. And my sister-in-law said, well, let's do the research and see how many fatalities there are. <laughs> that was her kind of approach, kind of a fear approach, right? We go into this with, and my mother said, I want to go and I want you to come with me. And so the whole conversation was about who was going on this helicopter flight. My mother was the only one who went in the end because the fatality research was, well, yes, there have been people, people have died on these helicopters in Kauai. And it was so interesting how fear just penetrated. And there's my mother going, I'm going, I'm going on this. There was nothing. There wasn't, it wasn't, she wasn't affected by the stories. She wasn't affected by the, all the terrible things that can happen. And so I, I was raised with a mother who, you know, I think did kind of, you know, penetrate the world with a kind of trust, I suppose. You know, there's a certain level of trust. And now she's 89. She's losing her memory and she's in a very peaceful place which she hasn't always been very opinionated person in a way and has you know has has had a, a big life that way but um so I think I when you know we look at our parents don't we and what do we learn from our parents do we learn a kind of steadiness or a fearlessness how do we learn to be fearless or can we learn to be fearless and I think that you know I notice in the work of course the work with cancer Fear is so dominant. You know, there's so many people who walk through the doors or into our circles or retreats. And I think fear and grief are the two emotions that are so present, you know, and they very quickly, when we get into circles, I think they show up. Uh, the, the grief is more likely to show up first, usually, that would be my sense. And the fear simmers away. So um, I think that uh, fear to me is so much about the love of life really you know like it's it's loving what's here loving what is wanting to be here you know fear when you're you're faced with a life-threatening illness or a surgery you know a big another big surgery 
I think it brings up our love, our love for life. You know, so, so fear is it's got so many layers to it. So when I can, when I enter a circle, I'm rarely afraid in the circle, uh, which is an interesting thing. So I'm rarely afraid when we create sacred space. There's something about is it just community? Is it the, you know, the way that we create a sacred space? But I, I'm very aware that that helps me most. And right now in my life, being in circles pretty well every day and calling circles when they're needed, it helps me with my fear in response to other people. You know, that's where my fear arises. Less, less about myself, interestingly. Um, I, I, my fear can arise in worry for other people. So, for example, this week, I called a circle for a very dear friend, Gretchen, actually, who you met, who is one of our art therapists, and her brother-in-law is in intensive care with COVID, and he's in his 50s. And so this wonderful opportunity to call the circle when there's fear, you know, this family, of course, they're, they're really worried and fearful. So we called a circle, and each morning at, you know, 8 a.m. on Zoom, we have, you know, Gretchen and her sister, who's, you know, the wife of the man who's in hospital. And then, you know, Gretchen's partner. And we sit, and Daphne and I, and we just sit and meditate together. And then um, in the lineage of the teachers, the, the medicine teachers, this is how I, where I come from. I studied with Dolores Krieger and Dora Kuntz in the therapeutic touch tradition for many years. And so for me, when I can tap into this, what I think of as a healing field. I'd love to talk for us to talk more about that because I'd love to hear your thoughts on this healing field and what the healing field does for fear. Cause I think it's very powerful and important when we pull, you know, we pull people around us. And so just this, you know, 20 minutes together where we uh, call in whatever people we want from the seen realms that, you know, people who are living on the planet or people who aren't, I do that very specifically people I know who, you know, if, if they do help, I ask for that. I don't know. I don't understand those realms, but I call on them for help. And then um, in my mind, do a, an energetic, you know, in my mind, I'm seeing Jeff in his bed in intensive care. And I'm speaking, calling all his friends and family in a circle around his bed. So this is a visualization. And then we call in the medicine people. And interestingly enough, Gretchen's, um, partner is you know from the north he's an indigenous man and he said to me thank you for continuing our traditions because he could feel he said my grandmother used to do that bring in the healers from you know who are gone and I I love that and I don't know how that all works but I can feel everything settle it's like when I'm at the bedside of a dying person I feel the same fearlessness it's a very so I don't know if that comes from inside or whether it comes from you know, what what helps us to settle and I, I can tell the difference in my own being when I'm in a settled fearless place and it does have to do with feeling you know maybe my father's lap you know the, the surround of others I think I'm most afraid when I'm alone you know when I'm in my own head you know with my own mind I think those are the times I feel afraid when my partner went through breast cancer three years ago, there was a lot of moments where, you know, I could, when, I, when I was alone thinking was when I had the most fear. And so there's some wisdom to that. I think that our minds, you know, we can get ourselves into such deep trouble with our own minds and our own thinking. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if I really answered your question, but I'm so oriented, I think, to create fearless spaces 
you know, for other people and fearless spaces for myself. And I watch what happens when people can step into a, a circle where there's a kind of steady presence. And I think that steadiness, it can dissolve fear. I don't think it always dissolves fear, but it can really help even in, in a moment, even in a half hour, an hour circle, you have an experience of fearlessness, even for a moment. And then you can remember, I have that. You know, I know, I know there's a part of me that's fearless. Yes, I, I don't want to spend too much time on my fear, but you know, it's been only a week since the pre-op meeting with the surgeon where I really understood the extent of the coming surgery. And, and just re remembering how difficult the recovery was last time. Mm -hmm. And um, there's mental memory and there's emotional memory yeah. and then there's body memory. Yeah. You know, the body remembers in a whole different way from our conscious memory. But anyway, where I would love to go from here, because I wanted to jump right in at the start to a little circle work together. Mm -hmm. uh, Oren mentioned that you're an oncology nurse, the founder and executive director of the Calendar Society, author of a beautiful book called Radical Acts of Love a true co-founder of Healing Circles Global, and you've been a member of the staff of the Commonweal Cancer Health Program. And when I was looking on your website this morning, I found that you actually have a quote from me uh, <laughs> I, I cherish, which I want to repeat, okay. uh, which is simply this one. Among those who know this work, Janie is regarded as a master teacher. I'm going to read that again as if it were a poem. Among those who know this work, Janie is regarded as a master teacher. And I remember when I came up to visit you at Kalanish, and you know, the last time we had met was when you had come to Commonweal to do a tradecraft of the Commonweal Cancer Health Program uh, 25 years before when you were planning to set something up in, in Vancouver. I hadn't seen you for 25 years. We'd been no. seriously in touch. I knew that you were doing great work up there, but when I walked into the beautiful, modest, Kalanish building in Vancouver on a tree-lined street, and I walked in, and the, how can I say this? The sense of sacred space was so thick you could cut it with a knife. And you told me, you said, yes, sometimes parcel delivery people come in and burst into tears. Yeah. And so you, you said you wanted to talk about healing fields, um, you know, field healing, uh, the field of key energy, um, Christ energy, Buddha energy, Krishna energy, whatever you want to call it. I think we both know that you can enter a sacred place where that energy has been evoked for dozens or hundreds or thousands of years, and you can feel it. Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. no question. And yeah. so Kalanish has that, and Commonweal has that, you know. Mm -hmm. And so here's maybe the beginning of a starting place for us, which is 
you and I have been both content, you for over 25 years, me for over 35 years. I've been at Commonwealth for 45, but the Cancer Health Program for 35. You and I have been both content to stay in one place and do a very small piece of work with small numbers of people, eight at a time, a week at a time, mm-hmm. for X number of times a year, again and again and again. And then together we start building circles. And first that is in-person circles, which we're familiar with. And then COVID comes along and suddenly we are both wrestling with a technology that neither of us intrinsically loves. (laughs) And yet we discover in some way that despite its limitations, it also opens things up. Mm-hmm. That you can reach people you could never have reached. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that with all the limitations of sensory presence and taste and sound and all those things, with all those limitations, it's actually possible to have deeply intimate experiences through this technology. Mm -hmm. And then just to add one other thing, in the Healing Circles global work, we offer a quite brief training. And then we launch people into the world. Mm -hmm. And they have sometimes had a lot of experience with circle work, Mm -hmm. but in other times they're quite new to it. Mm -hmm. And so there's this question for people who have taken the training of whether, okay, now I'm a full-fledged healing circles leader, or whether this is just the first steps on a lifelong journey Mm -hmm. into the endless pilgrimage of deep mind circle work. So I'll stop there and just ask for your reflection. Thank you, Michael. Oh, there's so much to say about that. I mean, I I, am back to the arrival at Kalanish when you came that day and said, you know, you could feel the energy. I think it's something that we can all relate to in different places. We find those energies that somehow, I don't know, they speak to us in a certain way. And I was thinking in the last year and a, and a bit where we've um, seen very few people here in, you know, in our building, which we think of as a temple, actually. And I, I go back to, I went to Ephesus in Turkey years and years ago and was standing in front of the ruins of a, um, a temple there and the guide said this is the temple where the women kept the eternal flame going night and day year after year after year and that's what came to mind when you said this kind of devotion that's you know so many people who are on this call today have devoted themselves to a life of service and I think what you said about you know eight people at a time you know again for me I mean, I when I landed at Commonweal and I did the first uh, tradecraft workshop where I learned about retreats, I think I've said this before to you, Michael, but I left that four-day, Rachel Remen was there and you were there, and um, there was so much encouragement, just go back and start a retreat program. And it, it, was, it was so touching to me it, it, that I learned that it wasn't the tools that you taught me what to do on a retreat. You taught me how to be on a retreat with the people you 
we're working with. So just in this moment, I'd like to acknowledge your Commonweal team and the teams at Smith Center in Washington, DC, who, who ran retreats for many years, the Harmony Hill team, some of them may be listening, they ran retreats. So this beautiful, um, uh, this this way that communities can come together and create create that kind of energy. I felt it. All I could I, all I could probably write in my book after that tradecraft was, they really love each other. Those people. They really care about each other. I could feel the love and care, and I thought, and that actually was the first place I started. So you know, for all anyone who's listening, who's beginning and thinking about retreat or thinking about starting a circle. I really encourage that, you know, that you bring people toward you and, you know, you, you initiate something with people that you respect that, and more than that, people you really care about and that you could imagine working with for a very long time. I would never have thought when I started Kalanish here in Vancouver and our first retreat was in 95, that we would still be, as you said, you know, retreat by retreat by retreat, and that that would be fulfilling. And it is new every time, isn't it? I mean, every time we walk into a retreat, it's a new group of eight people. It's a new retreat. It's a different retreat. And there's the team. And I always talk about the Kalanish Standing Stones, which is the largest circle of stones in the Outer Hebrides in Scotland, as my, you know, it's my symbol for what that you know, what we do as a team, we stand steady, we stand beside each other, quiet, we receive, we receive the pain, so much of what we do is receive pain, and struggle, and so people feel seen, and heard, and accepted, they're not judged for having this thought, or that thought, or this belief, or that belief, and then they start to feel themselves again, maybe after many, many years of being fragmented, being disconnected from who they are, you're listening to a TNS conversation with Janie Brown and Michael Lerner, co-presented with Healing Circles Global. And then the grief work and the fear work and then the joy, the joy comes in, you know. So this idea of creating energies together as teams, because there's such an alchemy, it can be between two people. And I know when I met you and Rachel, it felt like, okay, we are, you know, we're kindred in some way. And having Anne and Christina and Parker, these last two sessions, I left those sessions so with such a feeling of being kin with all of you and kindred. And that's not a feeling, you know, I get every day with the people I meet. So that's a, so we can do this, as you said, virtually, we can do this globally by saying we belong together. We belong together in in such a beautiful, simple way by saying, I see you, I recognize something in you. And it is, um, there's a humility, there's a, a kind of desire to go deeper, you know, with our own growth, our own spiritual, emotional growth, and to really create um, an open space inside us to receive people. And I think that's what we do in Circle. We say, you know, I'm here as myself. I love we can, you know, deconstruct our professionalism. I mean, for any of you who are listening or professionals going into Healing Circles work, that's our work to, to decondition our professionalism. So we, we come to the circle as a human being first, you know, and we have our expertise, but we're there as, you know, and so this work to become more and more of a steady, a standing stone. You know, I remember when I first went to the stone circle, and I've talked about this before, I'm putting my hand 
on the first stone that stood for 5,000 years and was deliberately placed there by people for some reason we still don't understand. But I could feel the lineage of all the people, all the visitors who'd done that before us. So we are deeply connected to um, times, places, and tribes of people, I'm sure, who, who want this kind of simple way of offering a healing presence. And we always say in healing circles, you know, we're not the healers. You know, we're not the healers. We're the people who create a space for people to find their own healing, whatever that may be, which is a, such a deep honor. And so, you know, the journey from commonweal to here, uh, you know, I've, I've, there was a woman who came on, I think one of, I think it was our, maybe our second retreat ever we've done. We're still waiting to get to 100. We were almost at 100. We were at 98 and then the pandemic shut us down. So we're still waiting for the 99th, maybe July, maybe November. We're in a bit of a predicament in Canada right now with this third wave. So it might be a while yet, but, you know, funny, these, you know, the numbers, you're almost there. You're almost there. And uh, we're not, we're not, we're not quite there yet, but uh, we will get there. These, um, anyway, I lost my train of thought. Hard to stop there because I've said a lot. Over to you. Well, let's, uh, let's just go into silence for a moment. How about another poem? Good, yes, I'd love to share another poem. I'll read this poem by Alberto Rios. When giving is all we have, and there's a, a, a quote at the beginning, it says, one river gives its journey to the next. We give because someone gave to us. We give because nobody gave to us. We give because giving has changed us. We give because giving could have changed us. We've been better for it. We've been wounded by it. Giving has many faces. It is loud and quiet, big, though small, diamond in wood nails. Its story is old, the plot worn and the pages too. But we read this book anyway, over and again. Giving is first and every time, hand to hand, Mine to yours, yours to mine. You gave me blue, and I gave you yellow. Together we are simple green. You gave me what you did not have, and I gave you what I had to give. Together we made something greater from the difference. So I feel that in my heart. You know, Janie, I'm, I'm feeling some tears coming up, and what it is, is, you know this, um, just how deeply I care about you. And there's such a profound resonance between the way that you do cancer health programs and the way that we do it. And the resonance is at the depth and at, as you've spoken, of the, a team that really cares and loves, cares about and loves each other. Uh, so there's such deep resonance. And, but the further teaching is that we do it a little differently. Mm -hmm. And that the differences are really important. So you, you came as a participant on a cancer health program at Commonweal with your wife Daphne and with Diana Lindsay, uh, co-founder of Healing Circles Global also. Um, and then you came, uh, uh, you know, to watch uh, 
one of our other co-leaders lead, because, and then you came to co-lead. And I said to you very distinctly, because I knew you <laughs> well, uh, I said to you, uh, Janie, uh, we want to do this the way you do it. Um, and um, so we, we, so you were very specific about the changes that you wanted. Now you were very specific, but I loved that because number one, we learned from how you did it. Mm. You know, so for example, in our cancer help program, when we do the the uh, the gatherings in the living room, uh, we have the participants in a circle with the two co-leaders, mm. and then the staff are in a second row around the side. You would have none of it. You would not have that at all. Everybody needed to be in the circle equally. This is just one example, but there are many others. And so one of the things I appreciate most deeply about you is that you are not only a master of circle work, but what is distinct from that, you are a master ritualist. You are a master ritualist. And I think you're probably the best ritualist I've ever met. So uh, when you did your grief circles at Commonweal in the healing circles gatherings, and then once you did a, a death ceremony, and I think it might be worth our while. I mean, just in other words, there's circle work, which has its rituals, right? Mm -hmm. But then there are, I would call them in some way, the, the set piece rituals, set piece isn't the best possible phrase, but where you're doing something very specific around grief or around death. Mm -hmm. So perhaps just so that we could make this concrete, you could describe how you do grief circles mm -hmm. and how you do the death ritual. Well, I mean, I, I'd love to talk about that because I think ritual can be as simple as lighting a candle or having some flowers. You know, there's something that shifts the energy into a deep, I think it's a deep memory uh, of, you know, that we carry it probably in our DNA of sitting around a fire, um, you know, from times long past. So ritual can be very simple. And I think, you know, when I look back to the first uh, kind of pieces, as you said, set pieces we did say around grief, uh, we started to think about doing a ritual around grief. And, and it was interesting because I felt that grief needed a container, but not to be contained. So I think grief is like that, you know, you people feel afraid of being overwhelmed by it. And then or they hold it too tight, so it doesn't get to be expressed. So ritual, of course, is a containment, but it's a large and spacious containment with, you know, with a lot of um, aspects to it. So I can describe the ritual that we did. Um, I did it on the Commonweal retreat when I was co-leading that retreat with you. But also we did a larger grief ritual with about 40 or 50 um, of the Healing Circles community. And I, I didn't know then if we could translate that smaller grief ritual into a larger grief ritual. And I think it actually can be translated. But we have to have what I think of as these, you know, these very steady people. So there were some Commonweal staff, some Callanish staff. And, you know, if you're going to make a bigger um, grief circle, and then I'm very clear of having this, the space holders being very steady and, and being able to hold 
space for grief, which is a very specific kind of energy. It can really trigger our own sorrow, which is not a bad thing. We can, you know, we can feel, and it, everyone participates in these circles. So with grief, um, you know, the, the specifics of that ritual, um, I don't need to go into all of it, but what I do know, and this is true of the retreats as well, and maybe for some of you listening around when you set up circles, when we set up the grief ritual at Commonweal, um, we would be working on that setup for several hours a night before. And this is true when we set up retreat. You're lucky at Commonweal, you have a retreat center. We go to a retreat center and we spend 24 hours setting that space up. And it's not just moving furniture, which we do, but it's about setting the energy. I think it's very, and then suddenly you feel it, you've got it. It's a very interesting thing. So in ritual, I think it's the same. It's very specific. This is how we do our rituals. So in other words, I remember we brought um, Mary Liz, who lives in, you know, near Commonweals, one of our team members, our musician. She went to a quarry and got rocks because rocks are part of our grief ceremony. So she didn't just get a bunch of rocks. She can pick the rocks and she took all different kinds of rocks and shapes and they were all very beautiful. And she brought them. And then we and then the night before we set those uh, we set a big, um, it's like a cauldron, beautiful sort of puja bowl, actually. And then we set uh, a, a big layer of rocks around, but they were e each place, probably some of you know Andy Goldsworthy's work, where he does these beautiful sculptures outside. So we spent a long time placing those rocks. So why do we do that? You know, what's the purpose of that? Is it Obviously, beauty is a part of it, but that's beauty in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? Not, not some people walk into the room and not even notice the rocks. So, why do we do that? There's something we're setting in motion about intention. So, it feels to me intentionality starts there when we're setting up space. So, you've got the cauldron, the beautiful circle of rocks around, and then you have the chairs, and all the chairs are very so everyone can see each other. You have 50 people, you have to make sure each chair has a view of everyone else in a circle. So that takes some time you're making, cause you can have somebody, you know, who's behind someone else. So again, equality, it's egalitarian circles are so beautiful that way. You don't have someone up front at the podium, you know, you're all in equal. So we had 50 people, you probably remember it, Michael. And then we, um, we asked people to, you know, we have, um, we often open the ritual and close it very specifically. And we use different um, musical instruments for that. We have a crystal bowl that we often use at the beginning of a ritual. And so again, each of us, I think, has our own way. Maybe it's a song that somebody might, or a poem, but we open very specifically. And then we take some time for people to reflect on their losses. And this is a very important part because it's saying, you know, what are my losses? And of course, with cancer, the loss of that begins at the diagnosis. There are multiple losses, physically, obviously, body parts, emotion, lots of changes in family and losses of friends. And, you know, there's just so many losses that I still learn about. Someone told me that one of their losses was all the blood they'd have to give through giving blood samples, that that was actually a loss. So they use each stone, one stone to mark each loss. And we asked them if they would like to write a word on that rock very simple and that creates that's a reflective time for each person to do their own work in all of our circles and rituals they have to be a hundred percent permissive so nobody's going to be asked to do anything they don't want to do so they don't even need to do that part so I think again in all the circles we do here speak if you wish to no pressure to speak 
you know, share if you wish to. And we do that on our retreats too. And again, that gives a sense of safety, taking the anxiety out. Um, so then we open the space for the actual ceremony. And that means that you can speak of your losses. And when I say containing, it, it, it means that the stories are contained in a space. They're held, you know, and I think that really makes a difference. So they hold the rock and then they share the loss if they want to. And this for 50 people, if you remember, I mean, that could take a couple of hours, right? But that's a very important part uh, for people to be able to speak out loud. The community then witnesses the loss without response or, you know, without speaking, as we do all of our circles. And then if they want to, we ask them to actually, in a gesture, again, I think this is, again, moving the energy of the grief that's inside onto the stones and then from the stones into the water. So the cauldron has water in it. So then they move toward, if they want to, gesture and put the rocks in the water. Uh, I don't know if you remember, Michael, but um, the wonderful man from Houston, um, who I've forgotten his name at this moment. Um, anyway, uh, do you remember when he stood up, he had three rocks in his hand and uh, he walked, he actually crawled to the cauldron to put these rocks in and he named them and they were three people and they were people that he was um, who died in the Vietnam War at his side. And he actually crawled to the cauldron to release those rocks. It was a most moving moment. And I could feel the whole circle. Diana said, Diana just put it. Thanks, note. Diana. Oh, Billy, thanks, oh. Diana. Of course, yeah. Billy, thanks. Of course. I love it. We get help from friends. Thanks, Diana. <laughs> Billy, of course, Billy, with his purple headscarf. Just yeah. love that man from Houston. Um, so he did, and then and then the next moment, which is the surprises that happen in ritual, which I think is why it's so deeply healing. Remember that beautiful man from Whidbey, Steve, I think his name was, got up and walked around behind the back of the circle to where Billy was sitting, who was just by now wrapped with sobs, and put his arms around this man. Remember that? Under his arm. And they just, because of course Steve was also a vet, um, and they just had this moment of deep understanding. They didn't have to speak. They just knew. And what I was aware of in that moment, the circle can shake because it's such a big, it's a powerful healing moment in that. And so I'm aware that the people who are in the place of uh, steady holders of space, they connect, we connect with each other. You know, we're just, we're just very present, as present as we can be. We're feeling the pain, obviously, but... And then the rest of the circle relaxes. Okay, you know, the space holders are okay. You know, it's like you're looking, is this gonna be okay? This is very big, very big. And so we could hold that um, very big loss for him. And it was, it was one of the, I mean, I'll never forget that. And these things happen in ritual. So then you bring it to a close when everyone's, you know, spoken and, gestured and then what we do at the, at the end and this is a very important piece to me is that we add beauty to the we honor we honor the grief because the grief is um it belongs it's a natural response to a loss there's nothing pathological about grief but we need to honor our tears and so we pass a bowl of petals rose petals beautiful colors and each person offers like an offering they do this in so many cultures offering you know offering and saying that we we tend these losses together as a community. We hold them. We don't have to fix them. We don't need to make them better. We just hold a space. It's just so beautiful. 
And so, you know, we leave a circle like that and we end it very specifically with a poem and an ending, you know, so again, it closes it up. And I think people are left with a sense of, um, you know, that anything that's within us can be held by in a safe community. And if it's not, doesn't feel safe enough, it won't be shared. And I really trust that. So there were, you know, several people in that circle who were quiet. So that's the grief, the very nuts and bolts of the grief ceremony. And it's hard to describe that in depth, but it has a lot of specificity to it. Let's go back into silence for a moment. As you spoke, uh, what came up for me is when I realized I had to face the second surgery, you know, I start with kind of numbness and clarity, you know, just mm. clear, quiet clarity. But I know myself well enough to know the feelings will show up in a day or two. So what showed up first was sadness and then the fear showed up later. But in talking with you, what I realized is it's actually an important distinction between sadness and grief. Mm. And I, I don't think I've sat with my grief about this. I've sat with my sadness, but mm. my grief. So that's. Mm. So we can't convey how beautiful your grief ritual is because it's all like underneath the cauldron with the rocks carefully arranged around it and candles and starting with music and you know people selecting rocks and writing their griefs on them and holding them and then when their turn comes and they're offered if you're ready to let go of this place it in the water but if you want to keep it with you mm. keep the rock and you know there are also these beautiful carpets that were arranged under the right. So there's all this beauty, as well as this deep intentionality. And as you said, you and I often talk about how many stones does it take to hold a circle? Uh, mm -hmm. or You know, like we actually talk about that. So I, I forget what number we come to, but I think for a cancer health program, a week-long retreat, you basically need something like at least five stones, right? Uh, five people with deep long-term connection with each other. You know? right. Now, in a healing circle, you may have two, right? You may have, uh, you know, the guardian and you may have the convener, whatever other word, but there are at least two in a, in a healing circle. Mm -hmm. But in a cancer help program, a week of really deep, you need five or so, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and you and I both regularly exceed that five by three or four, you know, yeah. so there may be uh, yeah. eight or nine real stones uh, who have a powerful energetic effect on the whole right. space. And people who come to learn, you know, we often, like you do, include people who want to learn about the process. So that's yeah. also, you know, that's a nice opportunity, yeah. So, Janie, can we turn to the death ritual, which is one of the most powerful things I've ever seen? When you did the death ritual, you brought down from 
from Vancouver to Bolinas, this extraordinary, beautiful, ancient wood, wood looked ancient, but this old wooden arch that when you set it up, we were invited to walk through uh, to the other side. But could you say a little about how you came to that and how that ritual works? Mm, I'm just remembering the story of driving it down with these eight foot pieces of yellow cedar and um, in the car, because we drove it, we had to drive it down. We couldn't fly it down, Daphne and I. And we were worried about getting to the border and explaining what it was. <laughs> and so we had it right up at the dash. I mean, it was, you know, these big pieces of wood. And we had it all ready, what we were going to say. Well, we're just going to visit friends and we're, you know, we're just taking um, a sculpture that we built or something like that, which is true. So we get to the border and the border guide, you know, they always look in your car and see. And honestly, I don't think they saw it. So death, <laughs> it just made me think about death. You know, we can't see it. He, they, he didn't notice. He didn't even notice these huge pieces of wood. So that was an interesting, I remember that. And then we driving down highway, down the highway, the I-5, and we were detoured down um, because of the storms. And there were mudslides and wind and rain. We thought, are we actually going to arrive or are we going to die on the journey? We had death in our car. And some people said, as you're driving death down to Commonweal, that's, you know, it was so funny. There were lots of funny moments. But um, in all seriousness, this was just, again, an intuitive, um, I wonder where these ideas come from but I, I feel sometimes they're given, we're guided somehow to, to create. I think we all are in our own ways. How do these things appear? So it was one of those, it was during a retreat. And I think it, to me, it was working with fear and death and fear of death and wondering how we could do that in a more ceremonial way. And I know many traditions work with death and have ritual and do all sorts of um, uh, processes with it but we wanted to create our own that would feel again resonant with our model and our our people so it was very and this this will sound so strange but it's supposed to it's like anything else the first threshold we built was a coat rack literally I mean it was it when we had a piece of fabric and basically it was it, it that's all it was and what startled me was we thought well we have to work with this symbol ourselves as a team first. So we even know what it feels like and what, what does it mean to do this ritual? And I think that's very good for all rituals that we do. We don't offer something that we haven't actually experienced ourselves. So we actually did as a team and what startled us all and actually it kind of scared us a bit was the power of that symbol because we were actually, we all decided we were going to stand in front of it. And this, this has become a bigger process now with the, with the threshold that we built, but in the beginning, it was like, just stand in front of it. And it symbolizes, you know, that edge between life and death, which of course is just the present moment, but it's it's real in our minds. And that, that symbol pulled us forward. Like it actually literally, some people kind of jump out of their chair towards it and wanted to experience that. And the, the most interesting thing was that each person went through that differently. So it's like birth, you know, we all come into the world differently and we do leave differently. So I don't know what that does, but at the end of the day, what I understood it to be, and we've been working on this for 15 years. So this has not been a, something we just, you know, put out into the world. It's very, very, like all rituals, I think they're very, they're private actually. And you shouldn't disseminate uh, too much about it while you're learning about it. So it was a lot of years of learning. 
Um, and when we first took it to our first group, our first retreat group, they were an alumni group. We wouldn't have taken it to a first level retreat group just because, again, we were learning. We want to make sure this isn't going to hurt people or harm people or, you know, make them so frightened they you know can't function. It was really a very big learning and a very tender um, process for us to do that with people. But again, what happened was really quite startling about this draw that people wanted to experience what that was like. And then the, the array of emotion that came out of people, some people, the rage at death, you know, they got to express it. You know, some, I remember a young woman going up to the threshold that we eventually built, this beautiful threshold, put her hand on it and just screamed and swore and said, no way, I'm not coming to you. You know, it was like it was just, you know, no truck with death, you know, that line in a poem. And others just, you know, they would they would kneel in front of it, bow down to it and speak and turn and speak to the world behind, you know, to say thank you. You know, thank you to my world. Thank you to the people. It'd be a, just a whole intuitive, instinctual part of a person that knows what they need to do. Um, we just had a beautiful ritual recently where someone, you know, a lot of our young adult community, they have, you know, they have embryos that they've, they've put onto into storage and, you know, because they're wanting to have babies after treatment. And this one young woman, you know, knew she wasn't going to be able to, and she said, I need to, you know, and they, then they're asked to let go of them because the storage, they need to go through a whole process. So we help people go through a process of letting go of that. And she actually wanted to put, you know, the 10, 10 candles on the other side of the threshold to represent, you know, those children that were not to be. So people know what they need to do. I didn't come up with that idea. In fact, I don't come up with any of the ideas. They come up with ideas. And so beautiful. Um, and we have a, um, a First Nations uh, Cree woman who's part of our team. She comes on as many retreats as she wants to. And she's a real teacher to us about ritual and ceremony and and she just, you know, when she first encountered that threshold, she said, can I go now? I want to, I want to meet my ancestors. She was so full of joy. So, you know, her view of death, of course, so different. Um, so I, I think it's a, when we brought it down to Commonweal, of course, it was, it felt like a big risk. It was a little frightening to offer it into a community that I think people could misuse those symbols or, you know, or judge them or so, you know, and, and so protective of, of the, the power of these symbols and the beauty of them. And, but it was, of course, in the Commonweal community, there's so much um, respect, I think, for, you know, this was an offering and people could, um, could walk through or not. And um, I'll never forget, I mean, you were the first person that got up, Michael, of course, your leadership, and you just stood up very quietly and you just walked. And it was just moved me so deeply to see. And of course, when a community saw you do that, everyone went into mourning of what that will be like, you know, when any of us go. So I walked by myself. As you yes, can. you did. Yeah. And uh, I remember Diana Lindsay brought some people with her and other people asked others yeah. to come. Uh, it was very powerful. One thing you've mentioned here, which I think is so important, is, you know, there are simple rituals that are quite risk-free, you know, holding mm -hmm. bodies, lighting a candle, reading a poem. But there are other rituals, like a death ritual or even a, a, a real deep grief ritual, that they can go wrong mm -hmm. if they're not really yeah. And 
I think part of the beauty of the healing circles methodology is that a lot of the agreements are basically protections against things going wrong. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Just yeah. really simple agreements that protect people who are new to this. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of its beauty and its power is that uh, this really is something that well-intentioned people can get. Mm-hmm. And then the further beauty of it is they're not just left alone on the other side. They're invited to join the circle of hosts and guardians. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that there is a community within which one can continue to learn. Mm -hmm. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Janie Brown and Michael Lerner, co-presented with Healing Circles Global. Here's a question that Oren gave us. Uh, Mm -hmm. Michael and Janie, two questions have come up from Emma Jarrett. What do you believe it is that makes a moment like the one with Billy and Steve, healing and not triggering? Is it the intention of the circle and setup? Triggering, I'm I'm assuming that means in a negative way, like triggering for the the person and putting them into a PTSD response. Um, I think it has to be, it is the response of the circle. It's the responsibility of the circle actually to be able to hold steady Um, because anything can happen in any circle if if the you know the soul of a person or the person feels safe anything can be revealed and this happens in a circle of eight it happens in a circle of 50 so we have to be ready to be able to in a way ascertain whether that was a triggering response or whether um, that was truly a healing response and that was i think you know that was our job as the holders of the space to assess that. And I was watching every second of his movements and his breath. And I was um, the person next to him. I signaled to just ask him if it would be okay to put a hand on him. And I was just watching just to make sure. And so again, you may not be comfortable with that, you know, that level of, you know, what happens if something happens like that in a circle. But I think, again, I trust the person very deeply. And if I was concerned and I didn't know if it was if something was happening that was difficult. I probably would, but maybe some people wouldn't know. Um, I would ask. I would actually stand up out of my chair and I'd go across to him and I'd say, "Is everything is everything okay?" If I was worried, so don't be afraid in a way to check in with the person because they will tell you, you know, I'm having a no, I'm having a panic attack or which which didn't happen. But I think we need to just you know again be curious. Don't be afraid to be curious if someone's you know you wonder if they're really struggling because things can people can really open up and I'm sure many of be nice to open um, the questions now about this because things do happen in circles and especially the safer the circle, the more things are going to happen. And I think that that's one of the, you know, the great medicines of a circle is this possibility um, for deep healing that can just happen in a moment. And then, you know, you have a safe circle, but you do need to watch and be, and be very aware of what's happening with the person. But mostly someone like that's been through years of living with that grief. And so I trusted Billy to tell me, I didn't need to ask him, but I would have had no, no worry about asking him, are you doing okay? So I trust his intelligence and his system to know. 
And uh, I think that's very important because I think we get anxious. Oh, have we done harm? That's probably one of our biggest things in circle. Am I, you know, are we doing? And I think, as you said, the contracts really keep us safe. And they're, I don't know if that, hopefully that answered the question about triggering versus. I think it does. And and there was a follow-up from Emma. Is it also triggering to others in the circle? Yes. Yeah. But not necessarily in a negative way. Right. And triggering, I think, is an interesting word because triggering can be you're just responding and you're responding. I think of triggering as responding with your own pain. You've been reminded you somebody said something. And so this happens very often in a circle, doesn't it? Um, And I think that um, triggering in and of itself isn't a concern. It's if something happens within that that feels another step where the person you can't manage that can't stay connected to the circle has to leave the circle quickly or has a you know some kind of major outbreak which again is very very rare in all the circles i've i've it's had enormously rare. it's enormously rare i think that what happens in general yeah that people are not given more than they can handle at any given time mm-hmm. but, yeah uh, there's another question from porcia chen uh silverberg how can we create such rituals virtually with so many physical components? Is it even possible? Mm-hmm. Well, I'd say it's possible to do ritual virtually, but not like that. Uh, there is there is something with the uh, presence, the presence of the actual energy, not energy that comes through a screen, which is chi too, but it's different. So I have certainly done some ritual. Rich, uh, Michael and I talked about this. Should we do a ritual with this talk today? And we ended up saying, you know, we can do a ritual by the, you know, the setup and the conversation. But I think it's it's very difficult to do the kind of rituals that I'm describing. I wouldn't even attempt to do that. Interestingly enough, though, Michael, you did decide to put your retreat program online, which we did not do. And I, you know, I know there's that's another whole conversation. But obviously, there's ways to incorporate elements of ritual and simple ritual, which I think Healing Circles does very well. Just even having Petra's photo here uh, with a candle is such a lovely presence, you know. That so there's definitely ways to introduce elements, but I wouldn't be tackling a, you know, uh, a bit like a, for example, a grief ritual. I haven't. I think they're probably. I think there's Commonweal has done this a grief ritual online, and maybe there's some information people could get from that. But I certainly um, I hesitate without all the senses present. Mm. Daphne Loeb, your partner, said that is why it's important to have good co-leaders who are also attracting others in the group. Mm. Uh, Greet Helsing asked, what exactly is the contract you refer to? What are the rules? Well, the contracts that we make are, you know, basically they're very simple, but they're about respect and they're about um, uh, confidentiality as a contract. So, and basically the... The, the contract is to not interrupt, not fix, not give advice, not um, correct. You know, there's a, this, this idea of non-judgmental acceptance. So we agree to listen deeply to one another. And if there's a breach in that contract, then we have to uh, say something. The, the host, the guardians, you know, that's, their, that's their role to make sure those contracts of safety are upheld. And so... There's a wonderful information on the 
Healing Circles Global website about contracts and, and circle agreements. And I think that that's certainly worth checking out. And each center and each group tends to create a variation of those contracts. Diana Lindsay said we call them agreements. Heidi Klauser says, Jenny mentioned that people sometimes are invited to come observe or join circles. How do we participate in that way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it it depends on the center, you know, what people can offer. I know Commonweal is very generous with people learning. And, I, you know, I've learned from you, Michael, about that, you know, that people want to come and be part. Um, so we certainly we've had oncologists come on retreat with us to learn. And but it's not it's, it's especially retreats. You can't have too many people come. So it's minimal. But I think, again, there's the, the healing circles training is an amazing way to learn. Um, and there's so many wonderful things offered. Um, you know, through the Healing Circles global community of, of learning, I think. Um, the retreats are a little bit different because of the numbers of people. Yeah, we have a very high bar for people coming to observe or participate. Um, and we do it rarely, yeah. perhaps a few times a year. Yeah. And usually we do it with someone who is not only committed to doing retreats, but actually pragmatically we believe is going to pull it off because there are lots of people who want to do retreats and uh, it's not so easy. Um, but we have about 15 minutes left, Janie. And um, are there any areas that you would like to touch on that we haven't touched on? We can take more questions, mm-hmm. but are there are things that you would hope to explore that we haven't explored yet? Yeah. Well, I mean, in a way, I'd love to hear the questions because then it would help us orient that because there's, you know, I think that would be nice. Yeah. Uh, Here's Leslie Huron. Can you speak to cautions for ourselves and our participants as the pandemic eventually allows us to offer grief work in person again? It feels as if there will be so much grief. Perhaps these offerings need to be a series of offerings, plans for longer sessions, a series of shorter sessions. I feel such potential for overwhelm. Mm -hmm. Um, thoughts about that yeah I mean I think we are in a a culture of mourning and that's going to go on for some time so we we will be encountering a lot of grief in all of our circles so I think that there are specific and again the healing circles global um, community has wonderful grief groups and through the team in Houston um, and so there are gr- groups you can send people to for, for specific grief work, series of uh, grief sessions. Um, but, but I think that grief, again, is, is going to penetrate every single circle. It certainly, it's, it always has in a way. So I think the less we separate grief out into, you know, I think it's very helpful to have a grief only group, that's for sure. And they're often more, you know, structured groups that, you know, really help and educate people about grief as well as give them a process for grief. But I think we all have to be, um, we all have to do our own grief work, I would say, first of all, understand, you know, our own relationship. As you said, Michael, you just had an insight about sadness and grief and the difference for you. And we all grieve differently. So I think we we have to go and Mike, uh, Francis Weller's book, of course, is, is such a wonderful book about these five gates of grief. There's many different types of grief happening on the planet right now. So, you know, familiarize yourself, read books about grief, understand it. Um, from a theoretical or, you know, a, a personal perspective. Uh, and then, um, 
be prepared for it. And it will come in all the forms grief comes. It comes, you know, some people are very disconnected, they're numb, they're disassociated, they're sad, they're angry. I mean, grief is, is just so prevalent and will be even more prevalent in all of our groups. And I don't think we need to be anxious about grief. I think, again, I feel grief is a normal response to a loss. It's not pathologized. It shouldn't be pathologized. There are people who have complex mourning, but that's a different issue. I think we have to be very comfortable with making space for people to grieve in our circles. And they will. If, if they feel safe enough, it will go right to the heart. And the heart is where the grief sits. And um, you know, we need to be able to create silent spaces for people to cry, you know, in our midst and as for as long as they need to cry and not be afraid of that. I always say to people who are afraid when someone starts to cry, just to say, you know, the crying will stop. We don't cry forever. We, we, we pull ourselves and it's true in a circle. There's some responsibility to the circle that happens. People say, you know, somewhere inside they say, okay, the cycle of crying ends. So, don't be worried if someone just really needs to crack open and weep. And I think a circle can hold that beautifully. And I know there are many circle holders in this group today that know how to do that. Just there's nothing, you know, there's there's nothing to do when somebody breaks open. You don't have to worry. You know, you don't have to worry about people's sadness emerging in the circle. So caution to me is about more about your own worry that something's wrong when someone breaks open I usually am so relieved when I see tears and I'm so um, glad for them because there's such a deep expression of our sorrow and uh, so we have to get uh, I suppose more comfortable mm. and you know those of you been running circles for years know that you know that tears are part of so many groups <clears throat> but they will be they will be present I would say in all the circles that we're going to be holding from here on in, so. I wanna ask you about your growing edge in this work now. Um, I had an experience with, uh, maybe three years ago, with Jerry Jampolsky, who was the founder of the Centers for Attitudinal Healing. And he died a few months ago in his 90s. But, you know, we worked 20 miles apart for 25 years or 30 years without meeting. And then toward the end of his life, he came to visit me. And we were sitting, he's a very distinguished man in his 90s, almost blind, large man, big boned. He's sitting on my couch. And I said to him, Jerry, let me ask you a question. I said, I know I'm not supposed to advise people, but even after all these years, I really struggle with that. You know, I really struggle with that. How do you how do you deal with that impulse? And he went silent for a while. He looked at his big hands, looked up at me, barely seeing me with his almost sightless eyes. And he said, Michael, it took me a long time to learn this, but how can I possibly know what is best for another human being? Mm -hmm. Mm, beautiful. Yeah. How can I possibly know what is best for another mm. human? That's very beautiful. Just Not beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so many beautiful things. We have five minutes left. What is your growing edge in the work right now? Where do you feel called? Do you have a sense of how you will move ever deeper uh, into this? 
I mean, I deeply love the retreat work. I feel it's where I can do my best work. I think I always have. So without it, of course, it's just opened up more space for other, you know, uh, again, a lot of online support and groups. But my deep love is the retreat. So I really want to get back to that. And I think we will get back to that. But in the meantime, what we did do is we had, um, we created some retreat days, a series of retreat days in person earlier on in the pandemic, where we took um, uh, eight people into retreat space for a day and then a second day and uh, in person and we and we did healing ceremonies where people designed their own ceremony and so this has really piqued my interest because of what happened in that in those ceremonies there and each one was utterly different and each one went to the heart of the matter and so of course I love the depth work as you know about me Michael um so for, for people to get some traction on those very deep issues through ceremony is really my edge. And I am really, I've been reading about ceremony. So you've always said that to me and I just go, whatever, I'm not, not a ceremonialist because I think of all the other people. I think, oh, you know, Francis Weller does these big grief. So, and, um, and also that comment on my website, of course, it was the person who made my website put your comment up about me. I was like, I said, I'm not that comfortable, Steph, with that comment. And she goes, no, I think it should stay on there. So we had a back and forth. I was like, oh, I don't know. Anyway, that's funny. So my edge, I think, is, you know, working with my beautiful team here at Kalanish, there's four of us. I mean, we spend more time together than anyone, you know, and we're just working together to, you know, just to, to keep healing and being of service. And this week, uh, our building was given to us here in Vancouver by the owner so oh we, yes, we got a transfer of the building, um, you know, worth $3 million. And to me, that just keeps inspiring. That's the future, right? That I won't be here, but I love that there's, so we're lucky and um, things just appear. I think my edge is, again, continuing to evolve as the guidance comes. I mean, we do, we've done this amazing fundraiser that just came out of the blue with one of our young adults wanted to run a marathon virtually last year, said, sure, she's stage four cancer. She just had brain radiation. She's 30 something with two young kids. You know, they just come out of the blue. She said, I want to run a marathon for you. That was last, last May. This year, she said, I want to do it again, but let's open it up to other people who want to move and run or cycle or walk. So we have this move because you can campaign, which is a beautiful sentiment, you know, move because you're able to, you know, and so we've had so we have 300 people on May 8th walking, cycling, or running for Kalanish. And we have raised $130,000 already because their communities are all involved. The 300 people are doing it. So I can't make that up in my head ahead of time. Like I can't think next year I want to be doing that because otherwise I, I, I couldn't be that creative. So I suppose my edge is by letting go, letting go of my agenda for Kalanish and letting it evolve, letting the evolutionary instinct of Kalanish evolve with the input of our beautiful team, our you know retreat team, our staff, our volunteers, and all the people who come here are part of that evolution. So I think I'm better to get out of the way and not vision much and let, let that come to me or come to one of us. So I suppose that's, I don't know if that, that's where I'm at today. Yeah, thank you. Janie Brown founder and executive director of the Kalanish Society in Vancouver, British Columbia, author of a beautiful book, Radical Acts of Love. Thank you so much for this conversation today.
dear friend Michael. Thank you so much. And everyone at behind the scenes, Oren and Petra and Doron. Yeah, thank you. Oren, back over to you. Janie, Michael, deep gratitude. Um, thank you for sharing all the experiences and the wisdom. Um, you've been guiding us for many years and will continue to guide us. Um, we hope that this conversation was as inspirational for you. Um, you can find out more about Healing Circles at healingcirclesglobal.org. Um, and this is indeed our fundraiser for the year. So any contribution you can make will help us continue to bring Healing Circles, which is reaching hundreds of people all over the world at no cost. Part of our ethic is to make sure that this is available to anybody in need. The New School at Commonweal has a wonderful program lineup for this spring. And if you check out it on the TNS website, you'll see more. Um, there are two more events in this series. Next week, we'll be talking with Diana Lindsay, one of the founders of Healing Circle Langley and a co-founder of Healing Circles Global. We'll be talking about where Healing Circles Global is today and how those circles are held. And on the following day, we'll be holding a panel with all of the people that have been part of this circle, having a conversation about circles, where they are going, and where our learning edge might be. Thank you to Daron Chovav, who's behind the scene here, and Petra Martin, who actually holds Healing Circles Global and all the circles and all the technology behind all of our work. It's been wonderful to see you. Thank you for joining us today. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Janie Brown and Michael Lerner, co-presented with Healing Circles Global. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams, and our theme music is by Jeremy Cohen. Post-production editing by Jerome Havev. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening. <laughs>